So last week, uh, Chelsea and I watched the movie Les Mis. Have you heard of this? It's a, it's a musical. It was adapted from a book by Victor Hugo. And uh, the story opens with the main character, Jean Valjean, and he's being released from a French prison after serving 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread and for subsequent attempts to escape from prison. So when, when Valjean arrives at this small town, he realizes that he can't find any work or any shelter because he's an ex-convict. His status is kind of a, a scarlet letter that imprisons him to the hatred and eventually to homelessness. No one will give him a job. No one will talk to him. His world is filled with anguish and gloom, a darkness. Similarly, this morning we find ourselves on the heels of a dark prophecy. Isaiah has spoken the Lord's judgment upon his people. The word was spoken as a result of King Ahaz's lack of trust in the Lord and the continued rebellion of the Israelites. You see, the nation of Israel had split into two kingdoms after Solomon's death. You see, we have the ten tribes of Israel in the north. They're called Israel. And then you have the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. They're called Judah. Each has his own king, and each king goes his own way. The king of Israel was Pekah, and the king of Judah was Ahaz. Both were evil. Now, Pekah, the king of Israel, formed an alliance with the king of Syria, who was named Reason. And he attacked King Ahaz in Judah. So to recap, you've got Pekah, the king of Israel in the north, and Reason, the king of Syria. They're working together to war against Ahaz, the king of Judah. Now, Ahaz, when he hears about this down in Judah, is understandably pretty scared. And Isaiah tells us in chapter 7 what he feels. He says, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Then the Lord sends Isaiah to Ahaz to encourage him. He wants to encourage him to trust the Lord, to cast off his fear. Ahaz, however acts in accord with his despicable nature. You see, he's a pretty despicable guy. Uh, we learn about him in 2 Kings chapter 16, and you can read about him there if you want to for homework. But he erects all these pagan worship centers, and he follows all these false gods, those that the Israelites were supposed to cast out of the land. And at one point, he even burns his son as an offering. So when Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, Hey, I know you're about to be attacked, but take heart, trust in the Lord, Ahaz does not. Instead, he trusts in his own political cleverness, and he creates a defensive alliance. And it, indeed, it, it eventually delivers him. So he reaches out to this guy, the king of Assyria. His name is Tiglath-Pileser. Hard to pronounce. I maybe did it right. I'm not sure. Uh, so anyhow, well, this is what he says to, to Tiglath-Pileser. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel. Who are attacking me. He sent some gold and some silver from the house of the Lord along with his message. And the Syrians came and conquered Israel and Syria. So they killed both Reason and Pekah. So Ahaz's unbelieving power politics seemingly worked. But the truth was that in seeking help from Assyria, Ahaz had in fact taken a tiger by the tail. The result was not the security which only faith could have brought, but unparalleled disaster. The irony cannot be understated. 
Judah's Assyrian savior would become its executioner. The northern kingdoms would be eliminated, and Judah would be submerged underneath the Assyrian flood, as Isaiah puts it. This is the point at which we enter into Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah has predicted the coming desolation, the dominion of darkness and distress, the reign of gloom and of anguish. Which is kind of where we left Jean Valjean and Les Mis. He couldn't find a job. His life seemed very dark. And if you're familiar with the story, uh, despite the fact that his world is filled with darkness and he is very much an undesirable, a bishop one night invites him in into, a, into his church and treats him with love. Valjean repays the guy by stealing all his silverware. But soon, he's caught. And when the authorities bring Valjean before the bishop to condemn him, the bishop doesn't condemn him. Instead, he pretends as if he has given all those things to Valjean, all his silverware, and indicates that Valjean had forgotten the best part, two candlesticks. The authorities then release Valjean, and this act of grace changes his life. It changes his light to darkness. Now, I won't ruin the whole musical movie for you. You can check it out on your own or, or read the book. It served its purpose for us this morning. But what happens to Jean Valjean is that he has an unexpected encounter with grace. So, too, would Isaiah make an unexpected prediction of grace. And this is where we find ourselves this morning. So if you want to turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. If you're new here, new to the Bible, it's going to be on page 469 in the Pew Bible there in front of you. So it's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, or page 469 in the Pew Bible there. We're going to begin reading with verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad as when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning we ask for your grace. We need fresh grace this morning as we need it each day. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would make your words come alive, that they might thrill us, that we wouldn't be distracted by all the cares and worries that we might have come in with, but that we might, for these next few moments, focus on you and allow your word 
to change our lives. Holy Spirit, we beg you to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So now that we understand the context of the passage a little bit with all this war going on and the two nations attacking Ahaz and he's rejected uh, the favor of the Lord. And Isaiah in chapter 8, right before we come up to, proclaims the judgment of the Assyrians. And so it's in this darkness that we, we enter into. But before we get to the passage, it's important to recognize that it's a poem. And it's a poem in two parts. The first part is going to be a promise described. And the second part is going to be a promise explained. So we've got the promise described and the promise explained. And Isaiah actually writes this in what's called the prophetic perfect. And so he's writing it as if it has already happened as he prophesies it out into the future in front of him. It's because of this confidence that Isaiah can place verse 1 of chapter 9 right next to the darkness of verse 22 in chapter 8, which says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's there that Isaiah is able to say, There will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. Isaiah is going to exhort his people to have a God-centered way of seeing and of living. He's going to exhort them to look to the promise, to look to the child that is prophesied. You will have the same decision as the Israelites did this morning. In darkness, when darkness comes, when hard times come, will you conclude that God has forgotten you and forsake faith? Or will you remember his mercy and his grace? Or perhaps, will you discover them for the first time? Will you continue by faith? Or will you go your own way? Isaiah directs his readers to have a God-centered way of seeing and of living by looking to the promise. So the promise described, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So there is gloom and there is anguish. But Isaiah is saying, for the people of God, there will be no more gloom. See, Israel, the northern part, had been brought into contempt and humiliated with defeat at the hands of the Assyrians. These northern regions were made up of Zebulon and Nephtali. And they were the first to fall. And Isaiah here is telling them that you were the first to fall. You were the first to enter into this darkness. But you will also be the first to see the coming glory. Alistair Begg always says that to understand our Bible, to understand the Old Testament, we have to read it backwards. You've got to read the New Testament and then read the, the Old Testament to understand it fully. And I think he's right. And, and, and so I turn to understand this part of the verse. I, I look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Let me just read them to you. And you look at Isaiah 9, verse 1, and tell me if you can hear uh, the similarities. And this is what Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16 says. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, that's Jesus has heard that John has been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Nephtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them 
a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the darkness was true for Israel. But it wasn't the whole truth and certainly not the fundamental truth. Isaiah is pointing that out here. He's saying there will be no more gloom. Take heart. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It's verse 2. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Isaiah turns from the lands transformed by divine blessing to the people entering into the light of God's favor. Walking here simply means living their lives. Those that had rebelled against the light and endured the judgment of the darkness would see the light and the light would shine on them. I think that's important. Isaiah uses both of these, these ways of saying he says they have seen the light and that the light has shined on them so that we get a full experience of the light. There's the subjective element where we uh, experience the light. It's, uh, it's our experience. We feel it shining on us. And then there's the objective reality that on us the light has shined. On them the light has shined. And so we kind of have the divine action matching the human response. Then we come to verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The multiplying of the nation surely would have brought to the mind of the reader the kingdom flourishing under the reign of Solomon. After all, Solomon was the only one who ever truly sat on David's throne because the kingdom was split into two kingdoms immediately upon his death. Therefore, it was fitting that he should be memorialized as Isaiah foresees and looks forward to the true Davidic successor. We also see that God has increased the joy of the people and they respond by rejoicing before him. The joy of reaping the harvest was a joy that came in peacetime. And the joy of dividing the spoil, well, it came as a result of military victory. The two contrasting spheres of joy here, the harvest and the plunder, express the idea of a complete joy, a total joy, fullness of joy. See, the promise has been described. God will light up the darkness being seen by his people and shining on his people, and he will bring fullness of joy. This is the promise described. Fullness of joy brought to those lost in the gloom of anguish and distressed in the darkness. But how? How will these things come to be? The promise explained. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now there are two sets of historical references in this verse, right? The first is that the vocabulary is trying to bring to, to mind of the original audience thoughts of Egypt. Here's some of the words that might recall that, right? Yoke, burdens, shoulders, oppressor. This certainly would have jolted their minds of the original readers to think of the plagues and of the angel of death and of the deaths of firstborn children and of doorways painted with the blood of lambs. It must have conjured up stories that they had heard from their parents about the splitting of the Red Sea, about the miracle of God's deliverance, about the salvation of his people. This language must have thrilled their hearts. The second historical reference is that of Gideon's great victory. 
Do you remember the story of Gideon? It's over in Judges uh, chapter 6 through 8, and we'll cover that uh, next year a little bit. Uh, But let me summarize it for you a little bit. See, Midian had oppressed Israel, and the people had cried out for help. God sent angels to a man named Gideon, who was uh, working on the threshing floor, and they tell him, you're the, the least of the least. You know, he's from the weakest clan. He's, a, he, he's not, not, very, um, not the first choice, right? And God says, I am going to deliver Midian by your hand. And Gideon says, me? No way. And he does the whole thing with the fleece. Maybe you remember, like, he puts it out and it gets wet. And then the next night he's like, well, I'm not sure if that was a sign. I'm going to put it out again, make sure it doesn't get wet. And, and the Lord confirms that he's going to use Gideon. So Gideon gets on board to deliver the Israelites from Midian. It rhymes, so you can keep it in your head, right? Gideon's going to deliver them from Midian. Eventually, as they go to, del- to conquer Midian, uh, Gideon goes with about 32,000 troops. And God tells him, Gideon, that is just too many people. And so, about 22,000 troops end up going home, which leaves us at around 10,000. But God again tells Gideon, that's too many. Send away some more. Until eventually the army is whittled down to about 300. God wants to make it clear that he is the one that secures the victory. Gideon and his men are indeed victorious as they are led by God. The battle indeed belongs to the Lord. Both references in this verse are working together to communicate the same truth. That God is the great deliverer. He is the victorious hero, and he will destroy the oppressor. Verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This verse is, uh, is very interesting, and I like it. Uh, basically, it's saying, war is dead. It has been conquered. The prince of peace has killed the enemy, and peace will reign forevermore. Men will no longer learn war. The weapons of war will be burned in the bonfire. War is over. Saying war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. That's what this verse is saying. It's going away. The people will gain the benefits of victory in the battlefield without ever fighting in a battle. All of these verses to this point, the promise described, and we're in the middle of the promise being explained, are pointing to verse 6. This is where it's all coming to a head. How is this possible? How are we going to have perfect peace? How are we going to be delivered? How is light going to shine on God's people? How are we going to move out of the gloom and into the light? Verse 6, For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the ultimate explanation of the promise described. A child? son will be born. It's just very interesting that everything points to the birth of a little baby. But it does. It's through him that the promise described and the promise explained will become a promise realized. 
Indeed, he will be born of a virgin. And his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And he will be a king. This child will not just be a king, but he will be the king. Not only called Emmanuel or God with us, but called Wonderful Counselor. This name again brings to mind the supernatural wisdom of Solomon. In particularizing this, this gift uh, of the coming king, Isaiah was understandably reacting. He's, he's kind of contrasting Ahaz's folly with this king's wisdom. You see, wisdom isn't just being smart or knowing the right thing to do. True wisdom is married to truth and obedience to God. True wisdom is married to truth and trust in and obedience to God. And though Ahaz seemed very wise by the world's standard, he rejected God and invited the Assyrian oppression. Solomon, even though he was really, really wise, he stumbled and fall, fell. He sinned. And the kingdom was split. This king, though, would be the true and better Solomon. He would be completely wise, completely obedient. He would be the wonderful counselor. This word wonderful has lost a little bit of its luster in our day. We, we, we use it all the time. It's a bit like awesome. It's an awesome sweater, an awesome pair of shoes, or an awesome TV show. And so it just kind of loses the punch that it packs, you know? But the word wonderful, it's a word. It's meant, it's meant to say something. It's meant to show that something is so remarkable that it requires God for an explanation. He's the wonderful counselor. Only God could explain his wisdom. Mighty God. This is a title for God himself. God has come to birth, bringing with him the qualities which guarantee his people's preservation, wisdom, and liberation. He will be wise, and he will have the strength of a warrior. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace describe the conditions that the king's birth will usher in. This king will have a kingdom without borders and without end. Do these verses make you think of a great military leader? Don't they? Don't they make you think like this guy is going to show up and he is going to overthrow all these human governments and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be wonderful. He's going to, you know, he's going to war on war, right? He's going to end all wars and bring peace. I think that anyway. It helps me empathize with Peter a little bit. If you remember in Matthew 16, uh, Peter says, like Jesus says, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter says to Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the child that is to be born. That's who I believe you are, Jesus. Jesus tells him that he's right. And then this happens. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Just note, Peter is rebuking Jesus. The one that he just said was the child that was to be born, that was going to end all wars, usher in peace, the light of the world, pulls him to the side and is saying, no, let me tell you how it's going to be. You're not going to suffer and be killed. He began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, the wisdom of God to the world seems as folly. But to those that are being saved is the power of God. The power unto salvation. Indeed, God's wisdom is not the wisdom of the world. Peter's vision was short-sighted. Sure, Jesus could have conquered Rome. But he was focused on a better victory. He was going to defeat the devil, sin and death. He didn't come to simply put on a crown. No, he came to be like us in every way. So that he could save us in every way. He would rest in a cradle, suffer on the cross, and wear a crown of thorns before rising from the dead and putting on his crown of glory. See, the shadow of the cross casts light on these verses. Unto us a child is born. Sin requires judgment. This child was born to die on the cross. This child that would be the light of the world would take darkness for us. The light of the world brings light into the world by dying for the world. And because of him, there will be no more gloom. Now, if you follow Jesus, you know that you're already in his kingdom. You're experiencing a foretaste of what is to come in its fullness with his return. As Israel waited for this child to be born, so too we celebrate his coming, his death, and his resurrection. And as Israel waited for his initial coming, we wait for the return of the king. Yes, the Lamb of God has guaranteed that everything sad will upon his return become untrue. This lion has won our peace and he will soon return and toss every garment rolled in blood and every weapon of war into the fire. This great hero has delivered us from our sins. He has broken the rod of the oppressor. He has brought those under his trust into peace with God, into fullness of joy. He has brought light into the world so that those that were once in darkness might glorify him and enjoy him forever. Isaiah has described the promise. He has explained the promise. Will you trust the promise? Will you choose gloom or grace? Indeed, we live in a dark world. But a light has shined. And the light will dispel all the darkness. Will you have a God-centered way of seeing and of living? Will you look to the Messiah? Who was and is and came once and is returning. I ask you to think on these things as we uh, sing together.